What can give you a competitive edge in today's red-hot housing market? Rocket can. That's because Rocket Mortgage can give you a verified approval. It could help your offer stand out. Rocket technology provides a rock-solid verification of your income, assets, and credit, giving sellers greater confidence in you. Go to rocketmortgage.com or call us today at 8338-ROCKET. A verified approval is based on an underwriter's analysis of your individual financial information, appraisal, and title report. Call for cost information and conditions equal housing lender license in all 50 states and MLSConsumeraccess.org number 3030. Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. This week in our program... We'll look at a new report on the treatment of Christians in China. What they're doing is torture, and it's physical torture, mental torture. And a First Amendment victory for a college professor. Thankfully, the Sixth Circuit has decided in his favor on the grounds that First Amendment rights apply in the classroom. We'll look at a lawsuit challenging a radical policy within the public school system in Virginia. These model guidelines are a violation of people's parental rights, people's free speech rights. And Jerry Boyer with a lesson on big tech and the social media companies. If the service you're using is free, then you're the product. We have all this and more. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Don Crow, coming to you from my home station of WAVA in Washington, D.C. You can catch my program each day through our live stream at WAVA.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Take a moment to follow the Christian Outlook on Twitter at TC Outlook. That's TC Outlook. Thanks for joining us. The nation at large has been, bit by bit, waking up to the growing threat from China. We need to hope that a growing bipartisan consensus emerges as China shows its true colors in some astonishing ways. Christians in China have long faced hardship and persecution. What we're starting to see now is alarming. Kevin McCullough turned to an expert on the region, Gordon Chang from AM570, The Mission, in New York City. Evidently in China, according to uh, sources today, uh, the Chinese government uh, are actually, some are saying holding, some are saying kidnapping, some are saying abducting Christians and putting them in transformation facilities and trying to get them to relent their Christian faith uh, or be jailed or worse. Is what these reports are saying true? I think that it is, Kevin. Um, we don't have confirmation of this Radio Free Asia report, but it is consistent with what we know about China's attitudes towards Christians. They have been persecuting Christians for quite some time. What this report adds is that it is more mechanized and more organized than we thought, because this report talks about uh, temporary facilities that have been set up in basements and other places, really out of sight to force uh, Christians to renounce their faith and to torture them and to hold them for months on end. So I believe it to be true because it's consistent with what Beijing is doing with regard to religions of all sorts. And one more thing, Kevin, this is probably just the precursor to large-scale camps for Christians. This happened with Uyghurs. Um, they started small, and then the persecution got larger and larger, and now it is on a Third Reich scale. This is, I think, going to happen to other people of faith. Well, there's no question of, about the fact that the Christian faith has has grown in China faster than any other country, I would say, over the last two decades. Literally millions of people coming to faith each week. W what is it about the Christian faith that so threatens the Chinese powers uh, in, that are in control? 
there's not actually nothing that threatens uh, the Communist Party in reality. Now, the party is threatened, it feels, by any sort of group um, that doesn't adhere to atheism and to communism. Um, but the Christians just want to pray on their own. But Beijing feels that it must persecute them. And by the way, by persecuting the Christians, they are spreading the faith even faster. Yeah. And I can totally see how uh, the Christian faith, uh, as an evangelical myself, I can see how that would grow under uh, oppression because the hope that is in God through Jesus is something that is transformational to this life. You, you, you're not actually hoping that this life is the end all be all. And I'm sure that's got to be intimidating to people that hold the atheism. Yes. Well, the one thing that frightens the Communist Party is that Christians have fervor. And this means when the communists look at their own organization, although it's over 92 million members right now, there's no fervor there. Um, it's more people are joining for basically personal advancement. And so right now they look at Christianity and they're scared because communists, if you go back 100 years ago, and by the way, the formation of the Communist Party, July 1st, 1921, uh, so they're going to celebrate their centenary pretty soon. They can see that their organization has grown old and that Christianity is young and is spreading fast. Wow, that is uh, that is very uh, interesting. What types of things are they exposing Christians to in terms of the uh, punishments? Well, they're holding them for months. Uh, the Radio Free Asia reports um, talk about one person who was held for almost 10 months. Um, but what they're doing is torture, and it's physical torture, mental torture. Um, there is endless indoctrination. And this is an attempt to, as you say, get people to renounce their faith. In our nation, the rights and liberties of Christians are threatened as the clear teaching of Scripture runs crosswise to the leading edge of sexual revolution. The case we're looking at is Meriwether versus Hartop. Mr. Meriwether is a professor at Shawnee State University in Ohio. He is also a Christian who could not, out of conviction, accommodate the pronoun requests of one of his students. I'll let John and Kathy give you more. Carl Truman of Grove City College was their guest on the ride home on Word FM in Pittsburgh. Let's talk about the case. You know, it, it's specific to a college campus, but we, we can certainly see that the issues apply other places. So can you give us the outline of it? Yeah, it, it relates to a series of actions taken by the administration at Shawnee State University relative to one of its professors, uh, Professor Nicholas Merriweather. He's a philosophy press professor. He's also a devout Christian, and he had... Uh, in one of his classes, a student who is biologically male, but identifies as female. And he was required by his administration uh, to use the pronouns of choice that the student demanded of him, even though that contradicted his own philosophical and religious views. And interestingly enough, even though Professor Merriweather attempted to, to offer a number of compromised positions to accommodate uh, the students and the students' concerns, all were turned down by the administration. And finally, he was subject to an investigation where he was not even allowed to call any witnesses in his own defense. Well, I think rightly, he decided to take legal action on this, and this, court, uh, this case made its way up to the Sixth Court of Appeal, and thankfully the Sixth Circuit has decided in his favor on the grounds that First Amendment uh, rights apply in the classroom, uh, which is, I think, an important uh, judgment in the pronoun wars, but also an important judgment relative to 
uh, academic freedom and sending a message to academic administration. So it's, it's a good result all around, I think. What I love about this is they talk about this professor using something called the Socratic method to address his students, which is, you know, your proper Mr. Hall or Ms. Emmons. And by doing that, you confer a, a bit of dignity and perhaps some, some energy into, into the, into the uh, proceedings. But then all of a sudden you say, you know, you, you, uh, you know, use this phrase, I'm going to misgender someone. And you, you call yourself a female when in fact you, you are a biological male. Now, by doing that, the aggrieved says, you know, by misgendering me, you've created shame within me and you've given me less than uh, the status that I deserve. That's a problem. And I, I would want you to stop that and see me as the person who I am. There's the big gulf, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that's part, part of the, the problem here is, of course, is to what extent does the individual have the right to demand that of somebody else? One could easily imagine a situation in the classroom where a professor accidentally misgenders uh, somebody and, and finds themselves on the receiving end of a disciplinary suit, even where there's been no intention lying behind the action at all. I think that on the whole, what this points to and what you're pointing to in, in the way you framed it, the question, John, is we're heading to a situation of real chaos here because if every person has the right to demand that other people conform to the form of address that they wish to have, uh, we're going to end up with complete anarchy because there are people, and I've seen them, them interviewed, who will tell you that their gender changes day by day or will tell you that their gender does not actually fit the, the male-female binary, but is some other confection that they've come up with. We're going to end up with a situation where it's, it's virtually impossible to engage in any kind of social intercourse or dialogue with people for fear of causing uh, offence. Some of it, I think, as well, has to come down to, to teaching young people that just having somebody refer to you in a way that you don't like does not actually destroy you as a person. It does not actually do that much harm to you. So I think there are a whole host of, of things at play here, all of which need to be addressed. Uh, and very few people, it seems, are actually willing to, to stand up and, and address these matters. Okay, Carl, so here's the question. I think when it comes to the average person, um, how much of the culture war do you want to fight in an interpersonal basis? You know, like theoretically, I very much agree with you. I appreciate, I appreciated something you said very early in your article in First Things. Um, you were talking about Professor Merriweather, and you said, Professor Merriweather is a devout Christian and therefore believes that reality is more than a linguistic or psychological construct. I think that's a very important point. However, when you're dealing with a person one-on-one, whether it's someone in your, in your church, maybe one of your neighbors, in your school, wherever. I mean, there is also an element of, I want to extend grace and kindness to someone, especially someone who has yet to believe. So how do you, I'm not sure how, how split the difference, right? How to split the, is it, a, it is, is it a splitting of the difference? How do you, how do you respond? Well, interesting enough, I think that uh, Professor Merriweather offered something that I thought about myself, actually, if ever I was faced with this kind of situation. Professor Merriweather had said, look, he'd be willing to use the 
chosen or the preferred pronouns of the student if he could actually have a disclaimer in his syllabus to say that he was doing this as a gracious courtesy to this person but didn't actually subscribe to the theory of gender which lay behind it. And I think that kind of thing is, I would say, a very, very reasonable compromise position where you're attempting to, to keep a conversation going. I could imagine a situation as a pastor where, when I was pastor, if, if somebody had come to me with a, a you know, severe gender dysphoric condition, I could imagine saying to them, well, I, I'm willing to use your preferred name. I'm willing to use your preferred pronouns. You need to understand that that's not because I agree with the philosophical position that those rest on. It's because I care for you and I appreciate you as a person and I want to respect you as a person and continue the discussion we're having. Of course, what happened at Shawnee State was the administration uh, rejected that as, as an option. And that seems to me to indicate that we're not really dealing here with two parties trying to find common ground where the concerns of both sides can be respected. We're in a position where one side is determined to press its position unconditionally on the other. Merriweather offers a compromise. The administration never did. And that's, a, that's one of the, the sort of the poker tells in this situation, I think. Coming up, a lawsuit challenging a radical policy within the public school system in Virginia. These model guidelines are a violation of people's parental rights, people's free speech rights. The Christian Outlook returns in a moment. As we consider a post-COVID world, The call goes forth to a new generation of leaders in politics and policy. I'm Pete Peterson, Dean of Pepperdine's Graduate School of Public Policy. And for over two decades, we've prepared students to apply America's founding principles to today's policy debates. Are you considering graduate school? Find out more at pepperdine.edu slash SPP. That's pepperdine.edu slash SPP. One of the saddest aspects of our ongoing sexual and moral revolution is the fact that all too often the victims are children. Those who are subjected to teachings and those who are the pilot projects for this unfolding revolution are our kids and our grandkids. Look no further than my own state of Virginia. The Virginia-based Family Foundation has filed a lawsuit challenging a far-reaching policy from the state's Department of Education. Victoria Cobb, the president of the foundation, joined my program to explain. Would you take us into this story? It is such a vital story, and I think I described that we really dare not drop our guard as to what legislatures and committees and other policymaking entities of the government are doing these days, right? Yeah, I mean, we need to realize that these things impact our families. These are not uh, decisions made with no consequences. And so what we have here in Virginia is that our General Assembly passed a law and said the Department of Education will create model guidelines on how schools will treat transgender students. And that might impact, obviously, parents with kids who are struggling with their gender identity, but it impacts every parent that has a child in public school because, in fact, it impacts all the other students because how we treat them in these documents and these model guidelines impacts bathroom usage, overnight trips, locker rooms, Um, But more than that, it impacts teachers and using compelled pronouns. Even students have to use the correct desired pronouns of other students or could suffer punishment consequences. It involves deception of parents. 
Um, it actually says the school will treat children according to how they feel their gender is, regardless of a parent's support or non-support around this child's decision. Um, they might not even let the parent know. They might deal with the parent legally with the child's legal name. And then in the school, treat the child with a whole different name and a whole different gender. So what's contained in these is deeply disturbing. As I understand it from the news release that your office provided, uh, during the review stage itself, a lot of concerned parents and citizens spoke up, uh, posted, I think I read 9,000 comments, which by your count was roughly two to one in opposition of these guidelines, but those were apparently ignored, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So lots of parent opposition, 9,000 comments, two to one roughly in opposition. And bottom line is the requirement by law when that happens is that the Department of Education has to answer at least the comments that say, we think you're doing something illegal. And there were lots of those comments. This is a, these policies, these, these model guidelines are a violation of people's parental rights. We believe they're a violation of people's free speech rights, particularly uh, teachers in public schools, among other things. Um, so they violate a number of different constitutional issues or places elsewhere in Virginia law where we've said parents have rights. And so we noted that. The Family Foundation did. Our law center, the, the Founding Freedoms Law Center did. And parents, even themselves, just sent in concerns that this was violating their rights. And the, the law says that the Department of Education has to at least respond to these legal concerns. They did not, and yet went forward, as you said, ignored everything that was said, went forward with these guidelines. They are now, quote-unquote, implemented, meaning they are expecting that every school board across Virginia will now adopt these guidelines, regardless of our concerns. And so because of that, because they didn't respond, we are starting with a procedural challenge that says, look, you didn't follow the law going forward putting these in, so let's address that. And once we get through that, then we can address the underlying concerns over parental rights and, and other things. From conversations over policies like we just talked about in our last segment to conversations over elections, we've seen a disturbing trend. The social media companies that have become the chat rooms within which we discuss these things and the news feeds that keep us up to date on them have shut the conversation down. Jerry Boyer of Town Hall Finance and the voice of Salem's editorial board joined Craig Roberts on KFAX in San Francisco. We want these Internet operators and platforms to be responsible and fair. But now that we've surrendered as much as we have, is that even possible? Yeah, I, I think it probably is too late, um, and, or, or it's at least too late given their current organization and personnel. So, I mean, I happen to think that um, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt where, where, I, you know, where I can. Um, and I think maybe Zuckerberg um, and Dorsey, et cetera, maybe they really do think they're being fair um, because they are in such a thought bubble that maybe they think that everybody who believes that, um, you know, male and female are distinct um, and not, this, not the same gender and that you can't transition from one between the other, maybe they think we really are the equivalent of Nazis and therefore outside the discussion of reasonable people because maybe they don't know anybody like us, like half the country or more. Um, so they might have such limited experience that this really seems fair to them, but it isn't. Um, which means that they need to do something to make sure that there are people who are involved in the process of deciding you know, who gets dropped and who doesn't, who gets blocked and who doesn't, who actually think like half the country. There just needs to be somebody there. You know, when Netflix is deciding to put out uh, you know, a trailer for a movie that sexualizes young girls, 
you need to have a Midwestern Christian mom in the room to say, hold on, uh, hey, listen, you know, code boys, I understand this might not seem weird to you. This is horrible. So you need to have, you know, <laughs> you need to have diversity. The thing they talk about so much, um, how much diversity they have, they don't really have any diversity. They have skin diversity and sexual identity diversity, but they don't have viewpoint diversity. So even if they want to be fair, even if I bend over backwards and stretch and say, okay, they do want to be fair, you can't be fair to a view that you have no familiarity whatsoever with and that nobody in your team represents. I do not spend any time on Facebook, and yet I hear stories about people that want to reveal every minute detail, what I had for dinner, how long I stood in the line at the restaurant to be seated, who was at my table, every minutia of detail, not recognizing that, you know, the old adage, information is power. And we have turned yes. over so much information to these platforms that now what have they done? They've done what we could expect them to do. And it doesn't even have to be sort of a dark Orwellian thing. It's just logic. Information is power. Information can also be money. And they've managed to cull both out of all of the information that we have. Nobody, if you're a listener right now and you're actively on Facebook, nobody put a gun to your head and said yeah, you right. must sign up for Facebook and you must post pictures of what you had for breakfast this morning. But here's we've a done basic it. Adage. And um, here's a basic adage when you're dealing with social media or, or really any service. If the service you're using is free, then you're not the customer. <laughs> and if it's a business making a profit, right, um, and you're not the customer, then you're the product. We're yep. the product. And that what these businesses do is pretend that we're the customers. So who's the customer? The customer, there's two kind of two sets of customers. One is... Um, companies that buy your data, they want to know what makes you tick, um, and two, and there's an overlap, companies that essentially want access to your subconscious mind by um, mm. changing, by giving you a sense of, of, you know, affinity to their brand or trying to manipulate you into a purchasing decision. Uh, they're hacking you trying to get you as advertisers, but they're not really, you know, kind of being explicit as advertisers, a little bit more like subliminal advertising. If I'm watching a TV show, here's a commercial, but I'm watching social media and something appears in my feed. Did it appear in my feed because the algorithm said to, or did it appear in my feed because somebody paid Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn to make it appear in my feed. I don't really know, and that's the point. I'm not supposed to know, because if I know, then I know that they're trying to sell something to me. So we're not the customer, we're the product. The customer would be the advertisers and the big data companies. Coming up... You want to change the future? It's not on any social media. It's in your living room, it's in your kitchen, it's in your dining room, it's in your yard. More with Jerry Boyer when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Don Crow. The wave of deplatforming that we have seen in recent days has irritated many who are active on Twitter and Facebook and the like. This irritation has been a wake-up call on this entire genre of media and the business model that makes it possible. The problem is... Over 230 million Americans have already bought in. That's three-quarters of the population of the entire nation. Let's return to more of the conversation of Jerry Boyer with Craig Roberts in San Francisco. 
Voting with our feet is something that we certainly has always been an option, but as you point out, Jerry, sadly, we've just not learned to really use that tool as effectively as we should. Yeah, we, we can vote with our feet and not use them. We can vote with our shares and actually vote. So what they're doing is by alienating customers, they're destroying their business model. They're inviting regulation. We have a piece coming out in National Review in a couple of days that basically says, listen, the left will never like you, Jeff Bezos. You're a billionaire. Mark Zuckerberg, it never will. Um, uh, Jack Dorsey, they will never be your friend. You have a chance to have a relationship with the Republican Party, which traditionally is pro-business, but not if you keep censoring conservatives. If you, if you do this, you will have no friends uh, on Capitol Hill. You'll have no friends with the regulators, and then you'll just become another regulated utility with the same growth rates and return on capital as the electric company. You become just a boring, no-growth no growth company. So you better think hard about alienating the only political party in this country that um, isn't automatically your enemy by starting to be fair. But if you're not, okay, Providence will provide. There'll be alternatives, and then Facebook and Twitter and Google will just be, at some point, in my opinion, distant memories. They will have had their day, and they will have misused their opportunity. So there may be the potentiality, in, in one sense, uh, of this kind of, quote-unquote, running its course, do you think, that people that get just so tired of this that every time they post something, they're concerned about whether or not it's going to wind up in the dustbin or might offend one of the so-called censors at Facebook or Twitter to the point where all the work that you put into building a platform and building a following and providing content, and suddenly tomorrow you discover, guess what, somebody at Facebook doesn't like it, and they have just made you disappear. And I see this all the time. People will put something on social media and um, not edgy, not crazy, you know, just like, you know, vitamin D might help with COVID. And boom, they're slapped with one of these warnings. You know, what, what, what you read isn't really attested to. Or if somebody says something about the election results, oh, look, I'm not into like the election was stolen, you know, by the Russian bots or, you know, I mean, I, I think there were issues, but they, got, they definitely could have gotten exaggerated. But there's no doubt that there are questions to be asked about the election results. Whether that amounts to a stolen election or not is a different question. But you put anything on social media about that and you get these warning labels. People don't like when someone like points at them in these social media contexts, like the algorithms point at them and basically say, don't believe this person, they're a liar. People don't like to be treated like dirt by businesses that they're doing business with. And so they move away. And I'm seeing so many more people who are saying, well, I'm going to MeWe now, or I'm going to Gab, or I'm going to Parler. And I think there'll be other alternatives. Of course, there's go nowhere. How about this? Spend time with your family. You want to change the future? It's not on any social media. It's in your living room. It's in your kitchen. It's in your dining room. It's in your yard. Um, and I think generally that's how, and in your church, that's really where you make social change. And I think people are beginning to figure that out. They're beginning to figure out that this thing was designed in such a way as really to be addictive in some sense. Uh, there's a kind of a hacking of the mind. There's dopamine addiction. It was designed by smart people to make you stay on it all night. And once people figure that out, um, then they kind of move away from it. So between government regulation, which is coming, lawsuits, which they're vulnerable to, new technologies, which want to take away their lunch, and people getting sick of being manipulated, I, I think that in the end, their attempt to control culture through political manipulation will fail like every other attempt to control people. I'm not saying it's right away, but I just don't think they're going to win in the long run. 
And I think your point is a very valid one, Jerry, and that is the look at this from the broader lens of the, the societal changes that have taken place here and that if we want to make changes, it doesn't lie singularly in influencing the board of directors at Facebook to make leadership changes or policy changes. It lies in an area where it's well beyond their reach to stop us, and that is influencing society, being a societal changer. And if you change your behavior, guess what? You don't need to have laws passed by Congress that will essentially uh, neuter big tech. We'll do it to them by simply stepping away from the computer or the screen and saying, you know what, I, I need to have some limits here because until you impose limits, they will never impose limits. And if they can control and manipulate you as the product to volunteer more time, to volunteer more information, to essentially give in, if they can figure out a way to make a buck out of that, that's exactly what they will do and have done. Coming up, a look at the challenges ahead. It's the willingness to say it out loud that's going to get us in trouble. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment, stay with us. As we consider a post-COVID world, the call goes forth to a new generation of leaders in politics and policy. I'm Pete Peterson, Dean of Pepperdine's Graduate School of Public Policy. And for over two decades, we've prepared students to apply America's founding principles to today's policy debates. Are you considering graduate school? Find out more at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. We are witnessing today a convergence of issues and an acceleration of trends that keen observers have been tracking with for years now. Political power in the hands of those who would threaten religious liberty. The growth of the administrative state and bureaucratic agencies that are either not accountable to the people or very indirectly accountable to the citizens they purport to serve. And the cultural predominance of a value system that is on a collision course with orthodox biblical faith. How do we navigate these waters? Gino Geraci turned to our friend Albert Moeller from AM 970, The Word in Denver. The Equality Act is currently written, passed already twice by the U.S. House, sent to the Senate. It would basically shut down the right of a Christian college to operate on biblical convictions, just point blank. And it's not just government. You know, it's not just the threat of the Equality Act. We see the convergence of so many powers in our society that don't have the authority of government, but they have the authority of big tech or the authority of uh, the entertainment uh, empires, or, or they have the authority of uh, sports. That's the, what's front and uh, center in the NCAA uh, and uh, Oral Roberts University story. Right now, the NCAA has been making promises about equity and diversity and uh, LGBTQ inclusion that already has sent a very clear signal that it's going to be very difficult for a Christian institution to continue to participate. And now with this article in USA Today in recent days, mm -hmm. we have open calls for the NCAA to be forced, for its hand to be forced, to keep a school like Oral Roberts University out of the NCAA tournament because it is beyond moral decency in requiring its students to hold to a biblical standard of sexuality. You know, and I think back 30 years, if you and I were having a conversation as younger men, and I said, do you think de decriminalizing homosexuality would criminalize the belief that it's wrong? Yeah. Would you have thought that that was an absurd 
thing to say? No, and uh, I wouldn't think it was absurd. I don't think the greatest danger is that they're going to have some mental wave test and they can figure out what we really believe about X or Y. It's the willingness to say it out loud that's going to get us in trouble. It's the willingness to say, yes, that's what my school believes. Yes, that's what my church preaches. Yes, that's what my denomination is committed to. I know Frank Bruni, columnist for the New York Times years ago, said religious liberty is fine. He says this with condescension. Religious liberty is fine so long as you keep it private in your heart, in your home, and in your pews. Uh, but you dare to uh, to say that this is public truth, and uh, we'll shut you down. Well, it's interesting. You've talked about this uh, in the past that it's the biblical solution to ideological justice that gives us the greatest hope. The reality is we are creatures made in the image of God. The, the, the fall really did happen. Sin is the problem. Jesus is the solution. Yeah. Do you see not a triumphalist uh, kind of thing, but do you see more and more Christians saying, hey, what if what the Bible says about these important issues are true, and now we're going to have to focus on that? You know, we're about to find out where the Christians are, where the Christian churches are, where the Christian denominations, schools, universities, and ministries are, because we're all going to be revealed together uh -huh. to be the people who say this is what God says in his word, and we're committed to it. And, uh, and by the way, if you're, going to, if you're going to be ostracized for holding to doctrine A clearly revealed in the Bible, then maybe it's a wake-up call that you're also obligated to B, C, D, E, F, and onward. And so, yes, I think there's going to be a new theological seriousness because I don't think Christians are going to have any choice. You said Oral Roberts with its decrees banning homosexual conduct, stating that marriage is only between a man and a woman, specifically banning male students from wearing makeup, earned a ticket to the big dance, even though the university's foundation expressly go against the very things that the NCAA say they value. That's what was in the in the, um, the original article in, in, in the column that you addressed. Yeah. And w again, is Christianity the one worldview that isn't going to be allowed in the brave new world? Well, I mean, in the brave new world, in the West, Christianity is the one big obstacle to the absolute victory of the moral revolutionaries. Now, worldwide, uh, you'd have to say uh, it's really it's really uh, very few people who are going to stand for these particular truths. Just let's just say that marriage is a union of a man and a woman. Period. Theologically, you're down to Orthodox Jews, Muslims, uh, traditional Roman Catholics, and conservative Evangelical Protestants. That's mm -hmm. about it. And, and uh, excuse me, I have to add to that the Eastern Orthodox. Right. Um, but, but in other words, you look at this. There is no lasting secular opposition to this moral revolution. It just doesn't exist. The only opposition is theistic. And of course, I'm speaking as a gospel committed Christian. Um, we, uh, we, we believe that God has created us male and female in his image, given us the institution of marriage, and commanded us in his word uh, as to how we are to use the sexual gift. And so it's not up for negotiation among uh, Bible-believing Christians. If the president of Colorado Christian University gets on the phone and calls you up and says, Al Mohler, what are you telling your board about how we get to go forward if the Equality Act passes. Well, the president of Colorado Christian University is a dear friend, by the way. And uh, the, what, what, what I would say is we're going to stand together. We're going we're to fall together. And uh, so it, we're, we're basically going to have to be willing to say the most important word in our name and in our commitment is Christian. We belong to Christ, and uh, we aren't going to bend the knee to Caesar, nor are we going to bend the knee to any of Caesar's colleagues. 
Um, and at the end of the day, there's no point being a Christian school if you if you forfeit Christian identity and Christian commitments. And, you know, when it comes to sex immorality, those just aren't little items of Christian obsession or little items of Christian doctrine. They're at the center of the biblical narrative. They're at the center of our understanding of what faithfulness to Christ requires. And uh, that, that's, that's where we stand. The opposition to Oral Roberts University isn't over his charismatic theology. It's not over Oral Roberts, the late evangelist. Right. It's over its requirement that its students hold to a biblical standard of sexual morality. That's it. And that's the million-dollar question. It is, at what point do you think the even not just the popular cu- culture, but the government itself will say, hey, we have to seriously determine – um, if what we wrote in the Constitution is still going to hold true, do you do you have a glimmer of hope in the composition of this current court to uphold what the Constitution says in the First and in the Second Amendment? Yes. Our ultimate confidence is in no human entity, including a human court. But I'm extremely thankful for the current composition of the Supreme Court. I'm very thankful that uh, President Trump nominated uh, nearly 300 federal judges and three justices of the Supreme Court. Anyone who doubts it makes a difference, a better look at what's headed to that court right now. Coming up, Harry Connick Jr. I wanted to record something that would give me comfort and perhaps eventually give comfort to some other folks too. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Amazing grace How sweet on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. To say that the year 2020 had some distressing moments and some concerning trends would be an exercise in understatement. As the events of the year unfolded, we watched them through the cloud of a pandemic and, for many, in the relative isolation of our home. Public gatherings and things like concerts were, for the most part, canceled. The artist Harry Connick Jr. canceled his tour. And what did he do? An album of Christian hymns and songs about his Christian faith. He joined Jamie Vaughn of CCM Magazine to talk about Alone With My Faith. It was last year in March, and I was on tour. The tour got canceled. We all know, you know, what it was like to kind of stop what we were doing and go home to our families. Um, and I was one of the lucky ones who was actually able to spend some time at home, you know, while all, all of the heroes were out there, you right. know, making our lives as normal as they could be. And I had a lot of time to think about music and I wanted to record something that would give me comfort and perhaps eventually give comfort to some other folks too. So the album Alone With My Faith is just that. It's about being alone, but you're not really alone because uh, your, your faith is right there with you. And you um, did all of the arranging, played every instrument. How long did it take you to do this? It took about eight months, you know, on and off. I mean, I didn't work every day, but the days that I did work, you know, was anywhere between six and 12 hours. And, you know, it was a lot of songwriting. As you said, I played all the instruments. So everything from trumpets to, you know, guitars, bass, drums, and then there's all the vocals. So all the background vocals. Um, And then it was the, actual recording of it that probably gave me the most difficulty because I'm not really a recording engineer. So setting up all the microphones and stuff is not my forte. So it took, it took a little time. Well, I can tell you, I've heard the whole album and it's very special and the, you, you can feel God's hand on it. And I think that he you know, brought you to a place to, to really help 
people in this time. I would love to hear about your song selection. I know that you've done um, songs on here, like How Great Thou Art, that you dedicated to your dear friend Lucian, and then Bill and Glory Gaithers, Because He Lives, and then you have new songs on there. I'd love to hear what, why and how you picked the songs to go on the album. If I said, hey, give me your top five gospel songs and you were kind of put on the spot, you'd probably say, uh, I don't know how great thou art because he lives. These were songs that were familiar to me and kind of right on the surface as songs that I really love. Yeah. Um, but I didn't want to do an album only of those songs because I wanted to do some albums about my personal, uh, some songs about my personal experience. Mm -hmm. And to be quite honest, many times throughout this pandemic, my faith has been strong, but sometimes I've questioned it. And I wanted to write about that too. So the, this album kind of, explores the the spectrum of my faith which i found out through talking to people is is not dissimilar to what a lot of people are feeling i mean you know a lot of us are trying to put all this together and i think it's a blessing that we can go through this together and and help each other through it so this album the famous songs and the original songs both were designed to not only give me comfort but to give comfort to everybody else sings my soul that wraps up this edition of the Christian Outlook. Thanks for joining us today. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Schumann and producers Charlie Richards and David Pouchon and Michael Cook, I'm Don Crow. Join us again next time for the Christian Outlook. Sings my soul, my Savior God.